Uh, my prayer for tonight is that we see one thing and one thing alone from our text. And um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna plant that there and then let you know what that one thing is after we get to our text. So be anticipating those things. Uh, I don't know if you've looked around or noticed in our world that it is uneasy right now. Um, that life just seems a little uncertain. That life seems like we just can't get a handle on it. I can tell you from experience in the last couple of weeks, things have happened that I didn't think were going to ever happen to me. Um, and yet here we are uh, today in 2021 with a whole host of things coming, what seems like coming against us and producing uncertainty in some ways. Well, our text tonight is, is Hebrews 12, one to two. And one of the reasons why Hebrews was written, or, and, and in my opinion, and a couple of other scholars, that it's a sermon and it's, it's there to exhort and it's there to um, help and it's there to produce some longing for Jesus Christ inside of us. But that's mostly because it's written in a time where, and this is debatable sort of, um, when it was written, it could have been written after the temple's destruction. And so the Hebrews, the, the Israelites, have no place to worship anymore. And they're fretting about, oh, how are we going to be cleansed of our sins if we can't sacrifice the goat? If we can't do all of the various things that we need to do to be purified of our sins and be declared righteous it's also written not just to those Jews who don't know Jesus, but also Jews who do know Jesus as an apologetic in a way. And if you read through Hebrews, you see multiple instances where you have tangible things about they would have known, for instance, the high priest. The high priest was their intercessor between them and God. And yet they don't have a great high priest anymore. The temple's no longer. Who are they going to go to? They have Jesus as their great high priest. We're gonna see that kind of in our text tonight. But see, they were without their place of worship and that produced a lot of uneasiness in their lives, uncertainty, in fact, dread. I mean, not just because the Romans were, had destroyed the temple, but because there were, there's no idea what was gonna happen next. Can I, can I ask you a question? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? The answer is no. Do you know what's gonna happen in the next five minutes? Lord willing, we will continue with this sermon. Uh, but if he tarries, we will continue with this sermon. If he does not tarry and he comes back, I'll see you in heaven. But it's all of these things that we think we have control about. We think they thought they had control over the sacrificial system going to the temple to get their uh, righteousness, to be purified of their sins to have their sins forgiven. But it's just like us. We, we thought we had a rhythm prior to 2020. You know, we were actually on the way up. We had a lot going for us. The economic circumstances were high. Our lives seemed pretty easy. And yet, here we are now on the other side of a year, um, almost to the day, about a, a pandemic and it affecting us, you know, only 10 months ago. So our tendency, just like the Jews' tendencies in that time, was to think, well, our, our normal is not here. Our, the way that we do things is not here. And I, I feel far away from God. 
God's presence seemed far off to them and it seems far off to us when we lose sight of the fact that God is always with us and that for them, the high priest was gone. They had no way of doing what they needed to do to be declared righteous. And so they were fretful and forgetful that God is still with them, no matter if he's in a temple in the Holy of Holies or if he's in their hearts. So if you're weary this evening from the events of this past year or just the uncertainty of life or the events of the past couple of weeks, uh, or if your anxieties have been placed upon you by the world standards and you just need to realize that the world standards mean nothing. They are as fleeting as life is. The goal for today's sermon is that you would live your life without those worldly burdens, without them hindering you from carrying out the wondrous works of our Lord and for his glory. So before we get to the text, I wanna give you the whole text in what I see is, I didn't count the words, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words, ready? God is faithful, endure life faithfully looking to Jesus. It's our whole two verses in a small package. God is faithful, endure life faithfully looking to Jesus. And with that, let us stand. Let us read Hebrews 12, one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Lord God of peace and comfort who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ who is our shepherd by the blood of the eternal covenant equip us with every good thing that we might do your will working in us that which is pleasing in your sight by the power of the spirit and through Christ Jesus to whom be glory forever amen you may be seated now, before we go, I just want to point out there are four things, this text, four points that this text gives us to be encouraged by, all right? Four encouragements. Uh, it, and these encouragements are more exhortations, if you will follow me there. But encouragement one, revere the saints of old. Revere the saints of old. Reject every weight and sin. Reject every weight and sin. Run the providential race. Run the providential race and rejoice in Jesus' victory. Rejoice in Jesus' victory. So for our first point, revere the saints of old. See, we, we see in the very text, if you look at it, it's, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I just want you to notice that we, the believers in Christ, those who are here now, not just the, the people that were reading this letter or hearing this sermon first, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, witnesses to what is, is what we gotta ask ourselves. But we wanna ask, who is this we, this cloud of witnesses? 
we are obviously we believers. This cloud of witnesses is the chapter 11 witnesses to God's faithfulness. If you turn back in your Bible, just a page, more than likely, you'll see a whole chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. And what it does is it lists out um, major people in the Old Testament of their faithfulness in the midst of God's promises. See, it attests to how we should think about these Old Testament figures. Not like what I was taught when I was a young boy, but as a moral example. Because honestly, Abraham's not really a good moral example. Um, If you think about Isaac and Jacob, Esau, all these guys, they're not great moral examples, right? Uh, In fact, in spite of their morality, they realized that God was faithful. So these are examples for us to follow. Abel's faithfulness in offering his best to God. Abraham's faithfulness in doing what God asked him to do, leave Ur, go to the promised land that he has promised him. Moses' faithful leading of the Israelites out of Egypt. These are all things that we should pattern our lives after, but not in the way of moralism, but in the way of faith. They pattern for us the faithful reliance on God's promises and God's promises alone. Abraham believed God's promise of land, offspring, and blessing, and he was given a son through Sarah, who believed God's promise and conceived a son. And further down the road, Moses believed God's promises of deliverance from Pharaoh's tyrannical rule and brought the people of God out of Egypt, one of the greatest miracles outside of our own deliverance from death. See, these faithful men and women of the Old Testament testify to the faithfulness of God. Why? Why why are they there? To encourage all Christians through the testimonies of faith. These are all, our whole first half of the Bible testifies to Christ and God's faithfulness through his people. And so the whole point of this cloud of witnesses, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, is to remind us that we are not alone. See, we need testimonies of God's faithfulness, not just testimonies of God's faithfulness today, because I got faithful brothers and sisters in the room right now, and they are encouraging to me, my wife being one of them. But there are, we need more than just what we see with our eyes to be reminded of what God has done. See, God knows that we require these reminders of his faithfulness. He gives us the Psalms to memorize his works, He gives us the prophets to help us know what he expects from us. He gives us the church through the ages to demonstrate his continued blessing of his people. So as you read, I'm gonna encourage you to do something this week. Read the Old Testament. Pick somewhere in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Well, Leviticus is hard. If you're not in your uh, annual Bible reading plan, uh, go read just the first couple chapters of Genesis. Maybe start at chapter 12. I know the students, you guys uh, went through the first 11 chapters. Start chapter 12. Go read the times of Abraham. Go read Joseph. Go see how God was faithful to Joseph. And then put your reliance not in the morality of Joseph, even though he was a fairly decent guy, but in the faithfulness of God to bring him through the hard times. Meditate on God's faithfulness this week. Another way you could figure or you can see God's faithfulness is through church history. One of my favorite church history books is called 2,000 Years 
of Christ's power. And it's four volumes. And the guy I'm hoping is writing the fifth as we speak. But I, I doubt he'll finish it. Um, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power describes the church, church's history to a T. If you see the enduring faith of the people and the enduring faith of the church, it is because Christ and Christ alone through his spirit has empowered them to glorify God that whole time in the face of massive tragedy, in the face of massive persecution at the very beginning to the very end, we see examples for us of God's faithfulness. One such example is found in a, one of our church fathers named Polycarp. Polycarp was John's disciple um, he was a disciple of Christ. John was discipling him. It was a direct line. And as he was drugged off by the Romans to be executed for not denying Christ, they tried to plead with him because he's, he's, he's very old at this point in his life. And he says, I, no way. In fact, he says it this way. For 86 years, I have been his servant and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? And he was tied to a stake and executed in 156 AD. He's not the first one executed, nor was he the last. You can trace that through history all the way to the present day of people executed for their faith. But they witness to us God's faithfulness. And how he does what he says he does. He says he will empower you to live a life according to Christ. And you have that responsibility to heed those words. See, God's people attest to God's faithfulness. So we must revere the saints of old to endure this life faithfully. But it's not about just, you know, revering some far off or distant people it's, it's about actually doing something about it. See, to revere just means to hold in high esteem. But this text doesn't let us sit there. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. See, we were to reject every weight and sin in response to God's faithfulness. See, to endure life faithfully, we must reject every weight and sin. And this these weights can be divided into two kinds of weights, this weight and sin, external weights. I'm gonna call the first type is an external weight or pressure. See, the temple worship that the Hebrews longed for was no longer accessible to them. Neither were they able to keep the ritualistic washings to purify themselves. So what this is doing is it's calling them to put aside the trappings of external requirements that are no longer available to them. And it does the same for us. It asks us to lay aside all the things that might hold us back from serving our Lord with full abandon. That might just be timidity. I know some of us, including myself, are slightly timid. You wouldn't think that, uh, considering my, how I hold myself, but I am timid. I care about how you're gonna hear things and how, how you're going to um, perceive me. Now that's, that's, a, that's a weight that I should not bear if I am doing what is righteous, what I'm doing, what God has told me to do because I am supposed to put off those desires to please man. Just as you are to put off those desires to please man. You're to lay aside, cast off, reject 
our, our wealth, riches, whatever expectations we have for ourselves and give it all to God. Realize that it's his anyway. Realize that it's his anyway. Give it to him, let him use it as he wills. We're also to lay aside all worldly duties. These are other external weights, worldly duties and passions that can hold us back from kingdom work. And none more, there's no other example that I can think of that's actually better than what we see in Matthew 10, 37, 38. And Jesus himself admonishes the people around him that they and us will not be able to love our worldly acquaintances, family, or friends equally to our Savior. He says, actually, if you do not hate your father and mother, brother and sister, you will not be able to follow me. And this is the picture that we're, we're trying to develop here. We're, we're trying to, I'm trying to show you that rejecting external weights and pressures are things that we put on ourselves. See, God gives us things to steward well, but he doesn't say, let it hold you back from doing kingdom work. No, just like an Olympic athlete sheds his outer garments, he sheds his tracksuit before he goes runs his race, even in the middle of like 30 degree weather. It's amazing. I don't know how they run in that kind of weather. We should be doing the same because we're running a race, as you will see, that is not of our own doing. That is not of our own making. But we are called to put off these external weights in favor for the joyous calling of Christian life, living for the glory of God. It's not just external weights, it's internal sin. It's also internal weights. See, the guilt and shame from our neglect of people and of God seem to weigh us down quite a bit. Even if you're not ugly with your wife, even if you're not ugly to your brother and sister, if you're not ugly to uh, those around you, or maybe you don't even have an addiction in some way, but sometimes those things are still required for us to be pointed to Jesus because it shows us our humanity and it shows us that we have internal weights and sins that we must shed. See, we are to reject the weight of sin because sin devours the sinner like a lion, lion in his prey. Sin destroys any chance of faithful obedience if it is not quelled and repented of. Sin dulls the conscience and the weight of that sin crushes the sinner so they are unable to follow the commands of Christ. Think about it this way. Think about one of the, the, some time in your life where you have felt like you were just unable to do what you actually want to do, like Bible reading. I, I love to read my Bible. Uh, it's part of my job. Um, but even when I, it's part of my job and I love to do it, sometimes I just feel like I can't. Sometimes I just feel like I can't get out of it or put myself in it. I don't know. It's just like there's something stopping me. And it's in those moments I have to think about my, about my life and take stock of what I am holding as a weight, internal or external. What is it that's pressuring me? What is it that I feel like I, God just can't handle? I, I encourage you to do the same. Examine yourself for what weight and sin it is that you might be able to cast aside so you might love God more. See, we're called and commanded to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow us, not just in Matthew, but also in Ephesians and Colossians through this language of taking off, putting off the old and putting on the new garments of life. 
And see, we, we have this, uh, this great example for us in Luke 9, 59 through 60. Jesus commands a man to follow him. He says, follow me. And the man delays. He says, oh, let me first bury my father. And Jesus rebukes him. And it's mostly because the man has sinned twice. First, by delaying the command and attending to an external weight of burying his father. While that seems like a noble thing to do, Jesus didn't say, follow me after. He said, follow me now. And he decided to put it off. And the second sin is probably more egregious. He ignored the command of God to follow Jesus. He ignored the call to respond in faith that those things would be taken care of when we follow Jesus. What we must see is that we obey our Lord to endure life faithfully. We are to reject every weight and sin because it's out of obedience that we endure life's trials. See, how are we to endure life's trials clinging to the same boulder that will crush us? Clinging to the same uh, addiction, the same problems, the same anger, the same uncertainty, the same anxieties that will crush us. Cling to Christ, cling to his mercy and rely on his grace so that you might see him as more holy than yesterday, that you might live with him forever. I'm pleading with you, his faithfulness is sure and his promises are perfect. Live in this life faithfully. For God is faithful. Endure life faithfully looking to Christ and rejecting every weight of sin. But we don't just reject the weight and sin for any sake. We reject the weight of sin so that we might run the providential race. We see this in verse one, the very last half of it, or last bit of it. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance. This endurance is not something that is foreign or is foreign to us. In fact, without the spirit, we cannot run with endurance. And so if we go back to Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 36, you see endurance used there in a very particular place. It says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he goes into chapter 11, revealing the promises of God, the fulfillments of all of those things in the faithfulness of his, to his promises for his people and for his own glory. So this is not something that you can do by yourself. In fact, it's something you must train yourself to do. If you do not train yourself to do it, just like an athlete, you see, we're running a race, right? Running with endurance. Endurance is not created in you overnight. Christ gives us endurance. He gives us the means of endurance, but he does it over time. And he does it through trial. He does it through victory. But we can't just hope that it happens. First, we've got to lay every weight and sin aside. And then we must actually go and do it. You can't just sit on your couch and hope to be sanctified. You can't just sit on your couch and hope that everything is going to go right in the world. No, you must be in the world. You must be running the race that God has set before you faithfully. No, we must compete. And so train ourselves to see the promises set before us as greater than the promise of getting through whatever we're getting through right now. 
But notice that we don't just run with endurance that is given to us by the Spirit. We run with endurance a race that is set before us. So this set before us language is seen twice in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The first time, with, as, according to us, running a race set before us. And then you see it spoken of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, set before us, set before him. This tells us something about God. That God has not left anything to chance. That his sovereignty does not mean that he's just in control, but that he is providential, that he has purpose behind his sovereignty, that his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence is in action in life. As we live this life, it is not something that we come across by chance. There's a nice book called by R.C. Sproul called, oh, Not a Chance. And uh, I, I love that book. To be honest, it is one of the most convincing points of God's sovereignty through a scientific lens that I can think of right now. But God's sovereignty is not something that stands alone. It is worked out in time by, through providence, like I've said. See, providence is his gracious rule set out in the plan of time. So it's something we encounter. It's something that we live. It's not like the open theist. I don't know if you anything, know anything about open theism. It might be something that gets thrown at you at one point. But this idea that God learns and God doesn't know the future his omniscience is what, what they would say is a way of understanding what is going on around him and he is learning moving forward. There's another section of theology that I'm not going to bore you with, but, sorry, Daniel. Um, but you need to be aware that these people, when you go to college and you go to talk to a re religious person or a religious professor, they will throw it at you and say, God doesn't know everything. Why would he let X, Y, and Z happen if he knew it was going to happen? The problem is they use the word let and not did. Why did God do? So you need to be able to sit before them and say, well, look, God is not just God like out there. He's God here right now. And that his providence is a necessary working out of his, out of his sovereignty. It is his active omnipotence, his active omnipresence, his active omniscience at work in his creation. Well, nothing goes apart, goes on apart from his providential will. So this race set before us is not by accident. The pandemic is not by accident. Death is not by accident. Theft of my car was not by accident. But it was something that I needed to realize that I needed to rely on God more to have him show me that he was more faithful than I ever expected him to be. See, we're not left to wonder what God wants from us, nor are we left to wander aimlessly across the world for God in his grace has given the Christian and all of creation a plan to interact with. It has been set before us, let us run it as he has put before us. The race ran before us is even a race that's been run has been testified to us by the saints of old and the grace of providence that creates endurance in you and in us. So while we should be rejecting every weight and sin and running the race set before us to testify to God's grace, can anybody you know, guess where I'm going with this? We typically forget that. 
we typically look at what's right in front of us. I have this saying, um, uh, people need to get their noses out of their navels because they don't really know what's going on around them. They don't really look around them and see what God is doing. They're staring at themselves inside and they need to be looking outside of them. They need to be looking to God and his grace. See, we love our weight and sins that we carry. You know this to be true. You know this, that we sit and we cling to the things that make us most comfortable right now and not for the comfort that is promised to us in eternity. So in your battles against sin, I wonder if you have ever had a complete victory over a certain sin. Have you had a complete victory over your pride? Probably not. Over your lust? Maybe not. But have you seen God work and will within you to show you that he is faithful to sanctify you even in our our worst sins? Those are just another evidence that God is faithful. Another evidence that we should be rejecting the worldly passions and our worldly passions and cling to the grace of God in Christ. But how do we do that? I just, I want to throw a couple things out at you. And I typically go here when it, how do we do these things? Uh, That question is asked. This text is very clear. We not only look to church history, we don't only look to Old Testament saints and their ideas and what they went through, uh, but their faith, but God's faithfulness to them. We actually have to renew our minds by immersing ourselves in the word of God, by reviling our sin and shame, mortifying the flesh so that we might see God as great and gracious. So let us cling to the promise of salvation and glorification by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And you may or may not believe me tonight. You may be an unbeliever in this room. And I'm not gonna pretend that we don't wrestle with doubts. But I want to remind you of that gospel that Hebrews itself testifies to and sits in the midst of. For God created all things and he created them very good. And yet we tried in our first parents, Adam and Eve, to usurp God's throne. Now, Eve, if you read it, Eve didn't, doesn't think that she's just usurping God's throne. She's not like thinking, I want to be queen. I want to be king, whatever. No, she's not heeding the word of God. He's, she's not listening to the word of God and then relying on him to get them through whatever they're getting through. And so they fell because they decided to take it upon themselves to eat of the tree that they weren't supposed to. We've been suffering with that same ilk since then. The same sins that beset our first parents beset us. The same sins that our Old Testament forefathers and the New Testament believers still affect us today. So with those sins in view, We need a savior from those sins because without it, we are destined to spend eternity under the wrath of God. And yet Christ comes onto the scene in the gospels. And in fact, this is such a monumentous thing that we organize our entire calendar around Christ's coming. And yet most people respond to him and what he has done, his perfect life, 
his perfect death, his substitutionary death for each of us, those who would believe, his perfect resurrection, his ascension after being glorified. We, res- we typically, and I'm gonna say this as a blanket statement, reject that in our daily lives, even though we ascend to it in our minds. But our job is to respond to Christ and his greatness, to lay aside all of our weights and sin for his glory and his glory alone. So unbelievers, people who have doubts trying to figure this out, you need to realize that there is relief from your sin. There is relief from your weariness, but it is only found in Christ Jesus. Believers, listen, you cannot affect change in your life without God changing your life. That he is faithful and when you focus on that faithfulness, when you keep your eyes on Jesus, as we're about to see his person and work, we are having the empowered presence of the spirit within us to lay aside those worldly weights and sins and to run the race. For it is God's providential grace that enables us to endure life faithfully. For God is faithful and so endure life faithfully looking to Jesus running the providential race. We can't just run the race and we can't just lay aside these things that hold us back because the how question has not been answered. Yes, we are to meditate on God's word. We are to look to our past. We are to hold those things as precious. But most importantly, we are to rejoice in Jesus's victories. Rejoice in Jesus's victories. Verse two shows this to us plainly. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of that cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, enduring life faithfully looks like rejecting sin, running the race to rejoice in Jesus's victory. It is his perfect work and way that we must look to. For we cannot produce these things of our own. We cannot actually rejoice in something that we do not have. In fact, we would not be able to muster up enough faith to love Jesus in a way that he requires, perfectly by the way, um, that, that he requires so we might be one with him. No, we must see him as not just uh, the object of our faith, but the founder of our faith. He is the one who has given us faith from the beginning, regenerating us to life, new life. And not only did he regenerate us, he perfected, perfects that faith in us, in himself. So as being placed in Christ Jesus, that perfection that he is, the perfection that he has lived, the perfect life, the perfect death, the perfect ascension, we now have the power by the Spirit who is his spirit, Jesus' spirit, to live and lay aside every way to sin, to receive all that he has for us and to love our Lord with all our hearts. See, he not only saves us by faith, but he gives us faith to endure the trials of life. As the founder of our faith, he, began, he who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. Meditate on Philippians 1.6. See that as, if you want to go with life verses, if you like life verses, Philippians 1, 6, a good one. 
He is the perfecter of our faith, our righteousness, and our freedom. But not only is he the founder and perfecter of our faith, he is a joyful savior. He's a joyful savior. He did all of these things in joy. If you notice, he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For what man had deemed as shameful, what we had deemed as uh, or Romans had deemed as a befitting execution style. He despised it. He pushed it aside and endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, for the glory of his father and for the savings of his people. See, he did it willingly and he did it joyfully. So in the providence of God, Jesus went to the cross to glorify his father and reconcile sinners back to himself. In fact, we know this is actually more the glorifying his father than purifying his bride or setting his bride apart. It's actually for the glory of his father that he endured the cross and despised the shame. The joy of obedience to his father is the joy of Christ. Let us have that joy this today. There, there is no joy apart from Christ. There is no way that we can actually have enduring and lasting freedom without Christ Jesus. We will be a slave to something. Let us be a slave to our Lord. And not only is he the founder of the perfecter of our faith, he is a, or a, a joyful savior, he is ascended Lord. I think the ascension gets a bad rap. And what I mean by that is he, we don't talk about it enough. In fact, without the ascension, he would just have been a man that lived on earth for his years and then, you know, died eventually, right? So we have, um, at least that's a thought. One way is that he could have been immortal and lived on earth the whole time and it wouldn't have mattered. But how do we know that he's, we're able to have an assurance of faith at all? It's because of the ascension of Christ. It's because he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It is because he intercedes for us on our behalf. See, without his incarnation, without him coming down, taking on flesh, we have no reconciliation. And without the resurrection, we have no chance at sanctification nor glorification. And without the ascension, none of that would have been, would have given us the assurance of faith that these Old Testament examples have given us. See, we would be without hope, blinded by the prince of the power of the air with no purpose but our own, which leads to death. But in God's grace, our Lord Jesus Christ is now interceding for us on our behalf, on your behalf. Look to him as the faithful one, who even when you do sin and you do not want to lay aside your weight and sin and run the race with endurance or faithfully endure anything, he is still interceding for you if you believe in him. And let that motivate you to do just what he commands. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us by by looking to Jesus. Are you his? Are you running the race of life with Christ? Or are you dragged down by every weight and sin? When God is faithful, endure life faithfully looking to Jesus, rejecting that weight and sin 
and running the race that he has set before us. Let's pray.